Thank you for this time that we get to come together to to share um, in your love and in your word and to understand who you are and what you want from us. God, I pray that you would speak to us profoundly today, Lord, as we enter into this text that's so popular and uh, because it's so powerful, it's so amazing, the transformation of Saul of Tarsus. God, we, we ask that through this time you would uh, do that transforming work in our hearts, Lord, that we would leave here different. Different God, and we know by the power of your word and the power of your spirit, you can make that happen. So we ask that you make that happen. Uh, open our eyes and ears to, to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so going through Acts, uh, just a fresh reminder. Um, we're going through Acts in chronological order, okay? So I'm going to teach different epistles that Paul writes later on. The first one will likely be at the end of Acts chapter 14. We'll get into Galatians. And I'll sh- share with you the different arguments for dating. And some say it was after the uh, Acts chapter 15 in the Council of Jerusalem. Some say it's before. Uh, but just to give you a heads up, in several weeks we're going to be switching, going to Galatians, and then coming back to Acts. But I think we'll all I'll enjoy that to really kind of see what's happening between the lines in the book of Acts because there's a lot going on in specific churches that have been um, <laughs> sorry Elizabeth just texted me it's about Jude but I didn't get to read it in time I'm just going to put that aside she'll call me if it's an emergency um, could be just a funny thing uh, anyways so as we've been going through the book of Acts, if you remember two weeks ago, and actually uh, two and three weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 8. Uh, if you recall, the church is getting persecuted more and more, but God uses the persecution to multiply His church, to get the church out of their comfort zone, and that's exactly what happens. The Lord used it to fulfill the outline that He gave us in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Remember, He said, hey, the gospel's first going to go to Jerusalem, and then all Judea, the region of Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. We see that second part, the Judea and Samaria areas fulfilled in Acts chapter 8. The church scatters, they preach the gospel of Judea and Samaria, people get saved left and right, and then the text kind of keys in on a guy named Philip, right? Philip the evangelist and his ministry, it was very fruitful in Samaria, and if you recall, he had this encounter with this man named Simon the sorcerer, right? Also referred to as Simon Magnus. And this guy professed faith, but when we see the fruit in his life, both in the text and early church history, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, doesn't seem that he was actually saved. And on the other hand, we compared him, Simon the sorcerer, with who? The Ethiopian eunuch, right? And with the Ethiopian eunuch, he responded in joy, rejoicing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we look at early church history, in regards to the Ethiopian eunuch, we see that he was spreading his faith. He was sharing his faith with the masses. We basically talked about what it means to have biblical faith versus unbiblical faith. Because there's faith, like Simon the sorcerer had, that doesn't really line up with the faith that Jesus Christ talks about. So we discussed that two weeks ago in this text, Acts chapter 9 we'll see the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Remember, from the point that Stephen was martyred and Saul consented to his death, Saul basically went on a rampage persecuting Christians, which we'll get into in the first few verses here. But what we're going to see in this text 
is likely the most powerful conversion or transformation ever recorded in history. Okay, there might be some that are more powerful, but this one stands out to me among the most powerful transformations we have, we have ever been able to read about. See, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to meet Saul of Tarsus right where he's at. And he's going to speak to him and he's going to reveal himself to him. And what Saul, what's going to happen to Saul is he's going to be transformed. See, Jesus, he's going to transform Saul of Tarsus, but he's also going to redirect him. And that's the title of this teaching, Transformed and Redirected. Transformed and Redirected. See, once the Lord transforms the heart, He redirects the will. He redirects the path. We'll get into all of that as we enter into Acts chapter 9. If you would with me, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who are of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, Saul, as we mentioned, from the moment that he witnessed Stephen being martyred, he goes on this rampage killing Christians, thinking that he's doing something good for the Lord. But I personally believe that there had to be some doubt in Saul's mind. He witnessed such a powerful martyrdom, right? If you remember Stephen, he's praying for those people that are persecuting him. He basically goes out very similar to Jesus. His face was shining like an angel. If you witness something like that and you were a part of it, you know that would resonate in you. And what I believe Saul's doing here, he's trying to silence those doubts, but he's not just trying to silence the doubts. He's trying to silence the truth of the gospel message And he's going to travel some 130 miles to Damascus, a six-day journey to try to prove the truth wrong. There's no way that what I'm doing isn't of God. God doesn't want this Christian thing going on. He doesn't want these people walking in this way. He doesn't want them to have the impact that they're having in this world. But no matter what Saul, no matter the effort, no matter the energy, no matter the traveling distance, Saul couldn't change the truth. He couldn't change the truth. And what we're going to see in this text is actually the truth is going to change him. Point number one, the truth won't change, so we need to. The truth won't change, so we need to. No matter how hard you try to prove the truth wrong, it's not ever going to be proven wrong. It's just going to prove you wrong. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. In other words, the word of God is eternal. It ain't going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. It's never going to change. Jesus is the truth. What it's, what's said about Jesus is that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the truth. That's the same thing. Word of God. It's the same yesterday. It's the same today. It's the same for forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will never pass away. It's interesting when you look at some historical accounts, when people go and do things like Saul did, trying to prove the truth wrong, 
the truth ends up proving them wrong. You guys know Lee Strobel? Anyone here know Lee Strobel? Right? Okay. So Lee Strobel, he was a, a, an atheist journalist, and he went out to prove the gospel wrong, to prove the truth wrong. His wife was a believer. He wasn't. He didn't agree with all this stuff. And in his efforts, he traveled all over the world. He did all kinds of stuff. In his efforts to try to prove the truth wrong, the truth, as I mentioned, ended up proving him wrong. He became a pastor. He wrote a book called Case for Christ. He even has movies and everything. He sold out for Jesus. Why? Because you can't change the truth. And when you try to change the truth or prove the truth wrong, the truth ends up changing you. The Word of God, it's true. And it won't change. In Psalm 18, if you want to write this down, Psalm 18, uh, verse 30 says the word of God is proven. The word of God is proven. It's been proven to be true. When you look at past prophecies that were made, whether it was a Babylon or uh, Egypt or Jesus Christ himself, we see these prophecies fulfilled over time. The Bible proves itself to be true. When we compare what the Bible says to historical accounts, it's absolutely fascinating. It's amazing. And the things that haven't been fulfilled, well, we can trust that God's going to fulfill those things too. He's already proven these past things to be true. He will prove the future things to be true as well. So we either conform to the truth of God's word or we resist it. We can either resist it or conform to it. We can either choose not to believe it or allow it to change us from the inside out. So what Paul later on says In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, Romans 12, 1 to 2, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed by the renewing of your mind? Yeah. Be transformed by the word of God. Allow it to change you. Don't resist it. Don't put walls up. Don't put your guard up. Allow it to do what it was meant to do, to transform us, to change us from the inside out. No matter what Saul did, he couldn't prove the truth wrong. Now we have to remember, back in Acts chapter 9, It was the high priest that gave Saul the authority to do this. This is Caiaphas again, the same guy that was involved in the death of Jesus. So Paul, we'll see later on, he's a Pharisee. Um, at least at this point, he is. And he's getting authority directly from the top to persecute these people who are of the way. Now we have to remember that Saul, he thinks he's doing something that honors God. He, he, he thinks he's doing something to please God. In fact, Jesus told us that the same exact thing would happen. It's John chapter 16. In John chapter 16, verse 1, it says, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. It's going to be a time 
where there are people that are thinking they're do, doing God a service. They're actually killing Christians. Paul is this type of person. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, this is the example that Paul gives about how zealous he was about Judaism, how, how zealous he was about the traditions of his father. He said, I was so zealous I was persecuting the church. Like that's how zealous I was because I thought they were committing blasphemy. Saul thought he was doing something right. Thought he was doing something of the Lord. But he wasn't. He was doing the exact opposite. It's a terrifying thought. It's a terrifying thought. This guy that loves God doesn't understand who God is. Sometimes we could be heading down a path where we think we're doing something to please God, that we think we're doing a service to God, and, and we're not. And we're not. See, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, it says, There's a way that seems right to a man, and its end is death or destruction. There's a way that seems right. I think I'm doing the right thing. I think I'm walking the right way. But that way it leads to death because it's contrary to God's way. So what do I do with that? I thought I was doing what God wanted. Am I doing what God wanted me to do? We got to pray. We got to ask the Lord. Hey, if I'm heading down a path that's not pleasing you, if I'm heading down a path that I think is serving you, but it's really not, I'm heading down a path that I think is glorifying you, but it's not as dishonoring you, derail me. Knock me off my path. Do to me what you did to Saul somehow, some way, because I would never want to think that I'm doing something to please God when I'm not. And this is exactly what Jesus had to do with him. He had to derail him to get his attention. We also have to note here, who is he going after? If he found any who were of the way. Before the church was called Christians, it was called of the way. The way. And I love that. It, it means so much. It doesn't just mean the, the, the way they believed was different. The way they lived was different. The way they spoke was different. The way they thought was different. The things that they set their eyes on and their hearts on were different. The way they loved was different. And this is really the call to us as believers that the way we do things is different than the way of the world. We should stand out. We should stand out as Christians because we live a different way. That's exactly what we see in the early church. They were the way. What way? The way of Jesus, right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want to know which way to walk? Walk the way Jesus walks. He reveals that through the, through the gospels to us. In Acts chapter 9, verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So as he's on his way to Damascus, this light comes and shines upon him. In Acts chapter 26, verse 13, as he's retelling this story, Paul tells this story in Acts 22 and in Acts 26, he says it was midday. So it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon, approximately. What do we know about 12 in the afternoon? The sun is at its peak, right? It's the brightest it can be. This light that was shining on Saul was brighter than the sun. This light was truly the light of the world. It was so bright that it blinded him. That's how bright this light was. 
because this light was Jesus himself. It wasn't just the light. It was the light of the world. And what Jesus was doing here was shining his light on Saul to reveal to Saul who he truly was. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So those who are perishing, those who haven't accepted the Lord, the gospel veiled. The truth of Jesus, they got blinders on. They can't see it. He goes on to say, whose minds the God of this age is blinded. It's a work of Satan to blind people to the truth of Jesus. Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Lord... He attempts to shine his light on the reality of who he is. So the veil can be lifted. So the blinders can come off. And that's exactly what he's doing with Saul of Tarsus. He's revealing his identity to him. He's lifting the veil. It took a bright light to make this happen. But nevertheless, it did. And Saul, in a few verses, will recognize who he's talking to. Jesus says... In verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting Christians? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting these people that followed me? He says, why are you persecuting me? Well, how was Saul of Tarsus persecuting Jesus? Because he was persecuting his children. And we, when we treat the Lord's children bad, When we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ poorly, we're persecuting Jesus. We're persecuting Him on some level. If we're angry with our brother or sister, we're talking bad about them, we're uh, we're gossiping about them, whatever the case may be, we're persecuting Christ. And He takes that seriously. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, if you want to write this down, 1 John chapter 4 verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He's a liar. Saul thinks he's loving God, but he doesn't truly love God yet. Why? Because he's hating God's children. If we say we love God, but can't get along with our brothers and sisters, can't stop talking bad about them, can't stop getting angry with them. He says, you're, you're a liar. Why? Because those two things go hand in hand, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. We need to know the love of God to understand how to love each other. So Jesus continues in Acts chapter 9. Paul first, then Jesus. And he said, Paul said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, real quick, when he says kicking against the goats, 
What he's referring to, this is a, an agricultural term or a farmer's term. So what a farmer would do as um, the oxen were plowing the land, plowing the soil to make it good for seeds to be planted in there so they could have a good harvest. If the oxen was going one way or another, the way they weren't supposed to, they would take a goat. It was a stick with a, a pointy, sharp metal thing on the end of it, and they'd prick them. They'd poke them in the back of the legs. They'd poke them in the rear to get them back on course. See, Jesus' point here, see, in Saul of Tarsus, you're resisting the correction of God. You're resisting the direction that I'm trying to give you. This is the second point. Resisting correction is resisting transformation. Resisting correction is resisting transformation. See, Jesus, he gives us a mini parable, a parable, and you'll catch on to this if you don't know already. What he's saying is, Jesus saying, I'm the farmer, okay? I'm the farmer. And Saul, you're the ox. You're powerful. You're very useful, but you're going the wrong way. You're not plowing the land that I want you to plow. You've gone down a different path. You're going a different way than what I intended. So I'm trying to get you back on track. See, we know Saul of Tarsus, he'll have a powerful ministry. And he's going to prepare soil. Remember parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13? It's a picture of the heart. God's going to use him to do that work in people's hearts so that they can receive the seed of the gospel and so that it can grow and produce fruit. But Saul was resisting the correction. And because he was resisting the correction... He was resisting the transformation and the change that God wanted to do in his life. What if Saul said, I don't care if I'm kicking against the goats. I'm going to go to Damascus anyways and kill all these Christians. Then you wouldn't experience the transformation that we read about in this text. See, the Lord had to show Saul, if you want to be a legitimate son, then you need to receive my discipline. Author Hebrew says it like this. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 6, Hebrews 12, 5 to 6, it says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. To be a little a legitimate child of God. There's a reality. He's going to discipline us. He's going to correct us. He's going to redirect us when we're going down the wrong path. And our responsibility is to take heed to the redirection, to welcome the correction. But the problem is, a lot of times we don't like receiving correction. We don't like people telling us the truth. And if we resist correction, again, it's going to minimize the level of transformation that we experience. Because if I say that I don't need to be corrected ever, what I'm saying is I'm perfect, okay? Who's perfect in here, right? None of us. If I'm resisting correction in pride, I'm saying, I don't need correction. I'm good where I'm at. But if we really want to change, there has to be a reception of correction. It has to happen. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, Proverbs 12, 1, it says, He who hates correction is stupid. It's foolishness for us not to receive correction. we got to receive correction if we want to experience transformation. This holds true for us as well as Saul of Tarsus. 
So Saul, once he finally receives this correction, he asks the Lord two questions, right? Two most important questions we could ever ask. Verse 5, he says, Who are you, Lord? And in verse 6, he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? It's point number three. Who he is should direct what we do. Who he is should direct what we do. Every decision in this life has to be filtered through the reality of who God is. Okay, who is God? I'll have no clue what God wants me to do if I don't first know who God is. I need to know who he is. Who are you, Lord? And this isn't just a one-time question that we ask. This is a question that we should ask daily. Lord, who are you? Yeah, I think I know you a lot better than I did seven years ago, but there's still room for me to grow in my knowledge and understanding of you. Why? Because he's an infinite God and we're trying to worship an infinite God with finite minds. There are plenty of new things to learn about God. But we got to ask, Lord, who are you? I want to know you better. And that's what it is. It's a relational question. If we want to build a relationship with someone, we got to know who they are, right? Think about it. You like meet a person for the first time. You might have a conversation, okay, whatever, small talk, whatever the case may be. But if you want a relationship with that person, it's going to take many conversations and asking them questions about themselves. Why? Because you don't know them fully. You don't know them completely. And if you truly have a desire to be in a close relationship with that person, you want to know who they are. You want to know where they're from. You want to know how they grew up. You want to know what their character is? This holds true for us in our relationship with God. There has to be a desire. God, who are you? I want to know you more and more each and every day. We see Moses. He had an encounter with God. And he essentially asked this question. He doesn't say, who are you, Lord? But that's what he's getting at. He says, show me your glory. Just before God... took him back up to Mount Sinai to give him the Ten Commandments for the second time. And it says in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. And he said, this is Moses speaking to God, please show me your glory. Okay, I want to know who you are. I want to see who you are. I want to have an accurate understanding of who you are. God responds in verse 19. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. And we see what the Lord's going to do is he's going to proclaim his name to Moses so that Moses knows who he's worshiping so that he would know the character of God. And that's exactly how God reveals his name. And verse six of chapter 34, Exodus 34, verse six says, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation you want to know who i am you need to know my character i'm merciful i'm gracious i'm long-suffering but i also visit iniquity i'm holy 
See, if we want to understand these character qualities of God and, and even want to n- learn more character qualities of God, we got to ask him, Lord, show me your glory. Show me who you are. I want to know you better and better. And you know what? Over time, as we continue to ask the Lord that question, he reveals new things about himself, maybe things that we didn't initially perceive. He did this in Hosea, in Hosea chapter 2. If you remember, Hosea was a prophet that was asked to marry a prostitute, Gomer. Crazy thing that God asked, but we see what God was doing is He was trying to show not just Hosea, but the Israelites how much unconditional love He had for His people. So, one of the things he mentions to Hosea is something that he wants to reveal to the people of God. I want them to see how much I love them. And he says in Hosea verse two, sorry, chapter two, verse 16, it says, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. He says, when you really understand the love I have for you, you'll recognize I'm not just God almighty. I'm not just your master. I'm your husband. I love you. I'm a perfect groom. I'm the best man you could ever have in your life. This is who I am. The Israelites, they didn't get this at this point. Sometimes we don't either. If we want to understand the love of God, if we want to understand the character of God, we got to ask Him, God, who are you? And that's exactly what Saul does. Who are you, Lord? But then he asked the next question, verse 6. Lord, what do you want me to do? As we learn and grow in our understanding of who God is, we have a better understanding of what he's called us to do. Why? Well, besides common sense, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, says this, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. We're called to imitate God. But how can we imitate what we don't know? We can't imitate what we don't know. It's like trying to play Simon Says with blinders on. You can't follow someone's lead if you can't see who they are. we got to take the blinders off and understand who He is so that we understand what He wants us to do. And in general, God makes it pretty simple. Not that it's simple to do, it's simple to understand. So I want you to be imitators of me. In first Thessalonians chapter four, verse three, in first Thessalonians four three, says the will of God is our sanctification. God wants us to be sanctified. What does that mean? Well, it's really the process by which He makes us holy or transforms our character. In other words, God's will for each and every individual in this room that we would look more and more like Jesus. That we'd look more and more like Jesus. That we would bear His character. That's why it's so important for us to know who He is so that we can know what He wants us to do. But it's not just knowing what He wants us to do generally. Sometimes we got to know what God wants us to do specifically. And that's what Saul's getting at. God's going to give him some specific directions. And it's okay to ask God this. God, what do you want me to do today? What do you want me to do right now? In Proverbs chapter 3, in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. That's a promise from God. If you trust Him, put your trust in Him. If you're acknowledging Him, if you're seeking Him, He says He will. He will. That's a promise. He shall is. He will. That's a promise. 
direct your paths. Now, it might not always happen as soon as we ask. It might not always happen the way that we think it's going to happen. But it's a promise from God. If you're seeking me for direction and you, with a sincere heart, really know, what, you really want to know what I want you to do, you trust me, you acknowledge me, I will direct you. See, if we live our lives daily asking these two questions, Lord, who are you and what do you want me to do? And we listen to the character qualities that God's trying to reveal to us about him. We listen to the direction that he's given us and we choose to walk in that direction. Then we can experience the fullness of life, the abundance of life that the Lord desires for us. But we got to deny a desire to know who he is and what he wants from us. In Acts chapter 9, verse 7, sorry, the second part of verse 6, 6b be referred to as, Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So we're going to break some of that down. First thing God says to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now we see that Saul is actually blind. He cannot see. And the God, the God gives him direction even in his blindness. Point number four, blind obedience leads to divine opportunities. Blind obedience leads to divine opportunities. It says, you don't, you don't need to understand everything. You don't need to know what's going to happen in the future. You just got to know what I asked you right now. And even though you're blind, I'm still going to get you to where I want you to go. And as we'll see, Saul, he follows this first direction. Then he's going to get to experience all these opportunities that the Lord has for him later on down the road. Why? Because Jesus told us, he who is faithful with the little things, I'll make him ruler over many things. In other words, you stay faithful to things I'm entrusting to you. Stay faithful to be a good husband, a good wife, a good father, a good son, a good daughter, good mother. You stay faithful to the directions I'm giving you on a daily basis, and I'm going to give you more and more. But if you can't handle... The little things I'm asking you to do now, why would I entrust you with more? See, for Saul to become the powerful apostle that God would have him become, he had to follow this first direction. He had to go into Damascus even though he was hindered by blindness. I'm sure Saul had no idea what God was calling him to big picture. Now he's going to reveal some of that later on in this text and we'll talk about it. But right off the bat, all he knows is God's telling me to go into Damascus and he does it. And again, it's through that act of obedience that all these other divine opportunities happen for Saul. Verse nine, relook at that. Acts chapter nine, verse nine. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Think about this. It doesn't say he was just fasting. He didn't eat or drink anything. Why? 
He was so impacted by what happened. You got to think about what's, put yourself in his shoes for a second. Okay. You were just on your way to persecute Christians. Okay. Traveled 130 miles. You've been persecuting Christians for some time now. You're responsible for the deaths of innocent people. And now all of a sudden you recognize that. That, wow, I wasn't doing God a service at all. I was hurting God. I was persecuting God by persecuting his people. Imagine how sick to your stomach you would be. Imagine like you thought you were doing everything good in life and all of a sudden the Lord told you, no, you're responsible for killing innocent people that I love. So he doesn't eat or drink. But this was part of the process for Saul. See, the Lord had to break him. Saul had to be broken. And this is one of his moments of brokenness because the Lord has to break us before he can fix us. If he doesn't break us before he fixes us, then we always try to fix ourselves. But it's only the Lord that can fix us. And he breaks Saul by leading him to this place of realization that he hates his life apart from Jesus. He hates his life apart so much so that he's sick to his stomach. He can't eat. He can't drink. But this is also part of the Lord's plan. In fact, he says this in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, Verse 24 to 25. Jesus said, he answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. Verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This was Saul's death to self process. Later on, I'll say, I was cru- I've been crucified with Christ. He wasn't speaking uh, physically. He was talking uh, spiritually. I've died to my flesh. Jesus, again, he says, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What does he mean by that? He wants us to hate our lives completely. He wants us to hate our lives apart from him. Okay. He he wants us to be so sick of life apart from him that we don't want to live any other way. But with Jesus Christ, Saul was brought to this point that he hated his life and recognized the only hope of life he has is in the person of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter nine, verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. The Lord's doing something really cool through the scripture right now. We see these names, Ananias, Saul, and Judas. Okay, we'll get into this and I'll show you in the scriptures. But all these names connect to an evil spirit, okay? And God's going to transform these names in this moment. Point number five, as God transforms your character, he'll redeem your name. As God transforms your character, He'll redeem your name. We know that Jesus, he's in the business of redeeming names. That the name that you once had doesn't mean the same thing that it presently does now. I'll give you some verses. We won't flip to all of these. If you remember Ananias, right? What was the last Ananias we know about? It was in Acts chapter 5. 
And remember, him and his wife Sapphira, they went to, to, they sold their property and they kept a portion of it and lied to the church and said they gave everything. And what did Peter say to him? Why have you led Satan to enter your heart? In lying to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God and you died. But Satan entered his heart, connection to a wicked or evil spirit. We see a King Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, among other texts, you remember King Saul, especially if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, going through First and Second Samuel. But King Saul, because he rejected God, God rejected him. And the Holy Spirit actually departed from him, didn't come upon him anymore. And was replaced with an evil, distressing, wicked, demonic spirit. Uh, spirit. So that's where we see this name Saul. And lastly, Judas, right? Judas is in Judas's house. I don't know if it's the same Judas for sure. But the name Judas, what does it remind you of? Like nobody names their kid Judas, right? We named our kid Jude, but not Judas. And it's funny, actually, um, the word means that in, in the original Greek language. But Judas, he betrayed the Lord. And when Jesus gave him the morsel, in John chapter 13, it said Satan entered him. Satan entered him. So all three of these names, Ananias, uh, Saul, and Judas are all connected in the scriptures with a demonic or straight satanic spirit. But God's doing something new here. God's going to redeem these names. Now, Ananias, it's not the Ananias of Acts chapter 5. This Ananias is going to be the disciple that lays hands on Saul of Tarsus, literally the one that God uses to fill Saul with the Holy Spirit, the first Christian to really minister to Saul. Saul of Tarsus? Yeah, he was a wicked man. But from this point forward, he's going to probably become the greatest apostle that ever lived. And all of this is done in Judas's house, the house of Judas. See, the Lord, He desires to redeem our names. What our name used to be, the old Saul, the old Ananias, the old Judas, the old whatever your name is. I won't say specific people's names. But what your name meant and what it stood for before you came to Christ, it doesn't mean that anymore. When people think of your name, I want you to think of your name. When your community, your family, people you know think of your name, what do they think of? What are the words that come to mind? Is it addict? Is it adulterer? Is it murderer? Is it liar? Is it deceiver? The Lord says, regardless of what your name used to mean, it doesn't mean that anymore. Your name means what I say it means. No longer are you those things. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're a servant. I call you faithful. The Lord changes what our names mean. Seven years ago, if you mentioned my name, if you said Tanner around anyone I knew, they'd be like, oh gosh, please don't tell me he's in town. In fact... My sister, seven years ago, she wouldn't let me in her house to see my niece. Like, she wouldn't let, and I lived right down the street from her, five minutes away in Boca. She wouldn't let me in her house. Just talking to her the other day, she's begging me and Elizabeth to come stay with her over the summer for a week that we'll be visiting. It's like, this is crazy. (laughs) 
If she got that text seven years ago, she'd be like, you're a fool. There's no way I'm going to let you in my house. But that's the reality. And I'm far from perfect. But God wants to redeem what our names mean. That when people say your name and think of your name, they no longer think of what they used to think of. Why? Because you've changed. And as God changes your character, he redeems your name. Lord says in Isaiah chapter 43, Verse 1. In Isaiah 43, 1, he says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You're mine. You're mine. Fear not. I'm the one that redeemed you. I'm calling you by your real name. Because the reality of it is, regardless of what people think of us, regardless of what I even think of myself, what really matters is what God thinks of me. And when God hears my name, what does he think? Again, he hears son. He hears servant. He hears all these names that I would have never associated with myself had the Lord not redeemed my name. Acts chapter 9, verse 12. And in a vision... He has seen a man named Ananias coming and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is talking to God. Are we talking about the same guy? Like, uh, for real? Like, this guy literally came to kill me and my family and the whole church in Damascus. You want me to go minister to him? Okay, God, if you want me to just walk out there and get martyred, just let me know. Okay, if you want me to pull off the Stephen, I'd rather you tell me ahead of time. But why? Why would I go and communicate to this man that came here literally to kill me and the people that believe what I believe? So God... He's going to go on and explain it to him. Hey, between the time of him coming here and the time that he actually arrived over these three days, God was doing something with him. In verse 15, he reveals this to Ananias. He says, but the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. He says, I've called this man and I'm going to show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. Now, we can't get this twisted and misunderstand this. Jesus isn't saying, because he persecuted Christians, I'm going to punish him, and he's going to face mass amounts of persecution. That's not why the Lord's doing it. He says why he's doing it. He's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name. We already discussed God's name is his character. When God reveals his name, he's revealing a character quality about himself so that we better understand him. And just as we looked at Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7, God, one of the characters he reveals in proclaiming his name is long-suffering. He says, my name is long-suffering. Yeah, I'm merciful and gracious. I'm also long-suffering. I suffer long with people. And now I want to show Saul how many things he must suffer for my name's sake because I'm giving him the name long-suffering. Your name is now long-suffering. See, when God says he's going to give us a new name, he's not just talking about calling us something different. He's talking about changing us into something different. You're going to bear my name. So you're going to bear these certain character qualities that I have. You look at long suffering. 
And it's not really one that people typically ask God to give them, right? God, yeah, I want to be more loving. Yeah, I want to be more forgiving, more merciful. I want to be faithful, long-suffering. I want to be, God, make me long-suffering. I'm not really praying that, Lord. But in all reality, it's not a character quality that we think, yeah, this is one I want to mimic, but it's one of God's character qualities. So he says, mimic it. Mimic the character quality of long-suffering. We wonder why we go through so many difficult things. There's a reality that God suffers long, and he wants us to suffer long, not to punish us, but to help us understand who he is. Saul, he understood this. He understood this. He understood that God was calling him to bear this name long-suffering. In fact, in describing his ministry in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, speaking to the the young pastor, 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, verse 16, However, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In other words, Saul saying, just as Jesus long suffered with me, he's called me to long suffer with people. Because I understand how bad I was. I understand how wicked I was. And I know I have to go through a lot so that people see the character quality that Jesus bears of long-suffering through me. This was the ministry that Saul, sorry, that Jesus had for Saul. He had a tough ministry. We'll look at it later on. Man, he was persecuted like crazy, whipped. He was shipwrecked. He basically died, was stoned to death, came back to life, it appears in the text. So many of these things happened to Saul. And yet God was using it to show people that character quality of long-suffering. Remember in Acts chapter 9, it says, Jesus said, I'm going to show him how many things I must, he must suffer for my name's sake. No, I don't know how he did this. If he was saying, I'm going to show him over a period of time. Okay. But even the fact that Jesus said, Hey, Saul, I'm calling you. I'm going to show you the things that you're going to suffer. Jesus said that to you. I'm going to show you how many things you must suffer for my name's sake. What do you think you would do? What do you think you would do? If the Lord revealed to you all the suffering that you would face in this life in his name, think you'd still follow him? I hope so. Paul did even though he recognized that God was calling him to a life that was difficult, a life full of suffering. In Acts chapter 9, verse 17, And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as... You came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So God calls Ananias to minister to this guy that's trying to kill him. He does it, and we see the transformation is, is legitimate. He lays hands on him. It says that he's filled with the Holy Spirit, that he gets water baptized. These scales fall from his eyes. 
We don't know exactly what the scales were, okay? The text doesn't clarify that. But there was something after he saw that bright light. Remember, he closed his eyes. When he opened his eyes, it says he was still blind, okay? So whatever the substance was, it was on his eyes. But the point was that he had to be blinded by the light of the Lord to actually finally see the light of the Lord. And then look what happens. It says in verse 19, Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Okay? Like, we gotta understand what happens here. The people he was going to kill, he starts hanging out with them. Okay? All of a sudden, we're buddy, buddy. Okay? I know I was trying to kill you and your family and drag out, but now we're friends. This says something about the people in Damascus. They're very forgiving people, but it also says something about the transforming work of Jesus Christ in Saul's life. He's hanging out with the people that were his enemies. See, when God does that transforming work, when He changes our hearts, everything changes. Everything changes. This is exactly what we see with Saul of Tarsus. Our lives, our desires, our friends, it all changes. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, this verse just keeps coming to my heart. Deuteronomy chapter 30, we see... God, talk about a change of heart or circumcision of the heart. Similar terms. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart or change your heart, transform your heart. Why? And the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. God says, I'm going to change your heart so that you know how to love me. Without the changed heart, we can't love God the way that He's called us to love Him. We can't love God with that agape love, nor can we love each other. So He's got to change our heart to change our lives. That's exactly what He's doing with Saul of Tarsus. He's changing his heart so that he learns to love God, so that he can learn to love God's people. When God gets a hold of us, there's got to be a change of heart. There should be an immediate change of heart, not always a complete change of heart, but there's got to be some level of the heart changing. It's exactly what happens with Saul. And it should happen to us. When we experience a transformation of the heart, a redirection of the will will follow. It, it always will. When God's really changed my heart, Desires are going to be different. Okay, I might still have some old desires, but there are desires that have changed. The way I talk, the people I hang out with, the things I do, the character I portray. When that change of heart happens, these other things are sure to follow. I want to walk in God's will now, not my own. If God's transformed your heart, then there should be a redirection of the will. If there's not a redirection of the will, then we got to ask ourselves, has God really transformed my heart? Am I just going through the motions? Am I just practicing religiosity? Am I just trying to appear a certain way? Or has God actually done that work in my heart? Has He changed something in my heart? Has He come into my heart? Because Christianity is different than every other every other religion. It's not that we're just striving for righteousness. It's that God puts that in our hearts that we want to live for Him. And He changes things in our hearts. And what he changes in our heart says, we're called to work out. 
We're called to apply. We're called to listen. We're called to receive correction. Because we see this truth in Scripture even right off the bat. As God changes your heart, He changes your life. If that's never happened to you, I encourage you, just ask God, hey, and even on a regular basis, I'll do this sometimes. God, I need a new heart. Like, uh, you've given me a new heart, but Lord, I, I just need like a fresh one, okay? And and the Lord sometimes will, okay, okay, I'm, I'm going to fill you with the Spirit. I'm going to change some of your desires right now because I know you're thinking about this other stuff or you're, you're, you're confused or whatever the case may be. Because I want to follow God's will, but I can't do it with the old heart. It can only happen with a new heart. So we ask God to give us new hearts. Let's pray. Lord, God, we thank you for this this story of Paul, Saul of Tarsus, the transformation that he experienced. It's still... um, uh, a hard thing for historians that are unbelievers to to describe or, or give an answer to because it was legitimate and it was from you. Lord, and I pray that each and every one of us would experience, experience that level of transformation, if not even more. Lord, that you would change the desires of our heart, that you would give us new hearts, Lord, that we would walk in that transformation, that there would be a redirection of the will. God, because we want to live for you. And we know we can't live for you just by trying. We know it starts with you doing that work in our heart. And yeah, there's effort, there's energy attached. We know that, God. But it's all meaningless if you haven't done that transformation of the heart. So please do that. In Jesus' name, amen.